Hello, welcome to the Movement Prescription Podcast. I'm Callum Lees, I'm a GP trainee and a researcher in physical activity at the University of Dundee. Today, I've got the wonderful Naomi Molnar on. She's one of the most highly qualified people I've met. She did her undergrad at the University of Budapest. She's done two masters, the first of which in behavioral economics at the University of London, and the second in neuroscience at King's College London. She's currently studying for a PhD in functional neuroscience at Samuel's University, whilst also being chief behavioral scientist at Beehive. Pretty packed schedule, Naomi. Thanks for joining us. <laughs> Thanks for having me. I've got you on. Just, I'm fascinated by behavioral science and what we can learn about it or from it that can impact our practice to promote physical activity through primary care. And I thought a good place to start would be asking if you can tell us a little bit about behavioral science. Yes, of course. So behavioral science is a very multidisciplinary field. It consists of psychology, cognitive sciences such as neuroscience, but also economics, sociology. So it's a combined uh, field because when you look at behavior, we have to look at it from multiple different perspectives. And when we analyze and try to change behavior, we'll have to look at it from the whole perspective of the scientific field. And behavior science mostly focuses, as I mentioned, understanding behaviors, but also on changing behaviors. Because obviously, as humans, you know, we don't always act as we want to. And as a society, we we don't always follow the rules and the norms. And this is why behavior science is so useful and essential in our everyday lives. Thank you. Do you have any famous examples of behavioral science at work, just to illustrate to the listeners and to me? Yes, exactly. So one of the principles of behavioral science is there are hot and cold states. When we are in a hot state, that means that we are unconscious, that we make very impulsive choices, that we don't have enough mental energy to make the right choice or be very rational. So a good example of this, for example, when we are hungry, You know, we don't have enough cognitive resources. So, for example, if we are reviewing applicants or if we are just choosing what to eat, if we're in this hot state, we will be very impulsive. We won't make the same decision as we are in a very conscious, cold state. So if you, for example, I don't know, you're looking at different applicants and you're reviewing them, make sure that you're not hungry because you might, you know, give uh, someone, you might give someone a disadvantage uh, just because you were more tired. But also, if you go to the grocery store, don't go hungry because you will buy a lot more food and a lot more food that you don't actually need or that is unhealthy. Oh, I can totally relate to that. Whenever I go to a shop when I'm hungry, I always end up buying way more and stuff that I don't need. <laughs> yes. And, you, you know, you want to be considerate. We want to buy the healthy options. But for that, you need to make the right choices. You need self-control. And you can only have self-control if you have enough mental resources because it's affordable. You know, you have to think about your future self. You have to think about, okay, what's actually good for me and not think about, oh, that's that, you know, I love that uh, chocolate. I want to eat it, you know. Yeah, it's, it's, very it's so hard, isn't it? And in, in his book, Daniel Kahneman wrote a book, Thinking Fast and Slow. And I think a lot of that resonates, the, the kind of, almost the conflict between what we want to do in the moment and, and what we we need to do or what our future self wants. For those that haven't read the book Thinking Fast and Slow, could you briefly summarize it? 
give an overview of 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 the main topics and and why it became so famous yeah exactly so thinking fast and slow was one of the first books in behavioral science and Tversky and Kahneman uh, are the, one of the biggest names they received um a nobel prize as well for the work and they were economists who turned you know to turn to psychology and realized that well we are not actually making rational choices all the time because before that the main concept was that humans are rational but when they were looking at different decisions and different decision simulations they realized that humans are actually biased and have different decision making patterns that are very recognizable that leads to actually fault like faulty choices and we make choices that are not necessarily good for us or that are not the rational choice and so they proposed that there are two ways of thinking thinking slow and thinking fast the fast thinking is called system 1 also kind of the hard state that i described before and the slow thinking is the very rational that system 2 and the big difference between the two is that in system 1 we are very unconscious we are following these decision patterns that were that are based through ev- evolution so for example we learned how to choose fast and how to make a decision that is you know very easy for us and this we really need because as i mentioned we don't have enough cognitive resources to always have the full information to look at all the different data points to consider everything so when we go to the grocery store and we have to pick a pick a milk we just choose whatever we always choose or you know that's the closest to us or we look for a specific message maybe like low fat or something like that so we have these decision making patterns that are make that makes life easy for us and this is very necessary because we don't have all the time to think about everything all at once maybe with ai one day it will be possible but not right now and so this system one is is very fast very intuitive unconscious but it's also very useful for us but sometimes it leads to choices that we not necessarily want to make or that are that are not that are not the smartest and then their system too obviously are we are very capable of thinking rationally to think about you know big problems and solving them but it's very slow you know it's very hard to do and sometimes we don't have the enough we don't have enough resources so when we are at work all day you know uh, solving big problems when we get to ho- uh, get home and then oh my god we have to go and exercise we have to do you know some chores we don't want to do it anymore so we will just pick the easy options and that's where you know unhealthy behaviors can occur uh, can occur yeah it's really interesting that our default is thinking fast because it's yeah, easier actually more than 90% of our decisions are in the fast system so that thinking fast enables us and saves energy we do it when we're tired and i think yeah. and you might be able to give some examples from from what i've heard and what i've read it it's really commonly exploited in particularly in marketing to sell us goods and products and exactly. you might be able to give some examples of that i suppose what what i'd love to hear about is examples of how it's used positively have you have you aware of any context in which it's used for promoting healthy lifestyle or or well-being Yes yeah, so basically the concept is that when we're in this unconscious mode we can be influenced because we rely on our environment we don't rely on our you know on our consciousness we don't rely on making you know thinking about all the information we need so we just rely on whatever is in front of us that helps us make a decision 
So this means that people can be influenced. And this is where the concept of nudging comes in, which is another very famous behavior science book. It's called Nudge by Richard T- T- Taylor. And uh, basically they are describing all these behavior change tools that can be utilized to change people's behavior when they are in system one. And this is a very important concept because this is why you know people can be influenced in the wrong and the right way. And I can give you examples for both. So if, for example, we look at marketing, obviously when we show, for example, that somebody similar to you bought this product, we can say it's on TikTok and Instagram, people talking about, oh, you have to stop whatever you're doing. You have to try this. If you're missing out, if you haven't tried this less, this will change your life. And this product probably doesn't even work, but you you just believe it and you feel like you need it because, it, you know, there's a hype around it. So you feel like you're going to be left behind and you won't know about it or things like that. So this is really based on, for example, loss aversion, because you want to belong. You want to know what the norms are. You don't want to be left out. So all these messages that really rely on making uh, people feel like they will be left out, that's very, very powerful but also just showing what the norms are or or describing claims and messages that really resonate with you will be very uh, impactful because if you see that one specific word that is a trigger for you, you might buy the product. Interesting that that I like the phrase loss aversion. iPhone might use it for selling the latest Apple product uh, or Apple might use it for selling the latest iPhone, but also in some ways that could be used positively because of everyone around you or, or your messaging is about taking control of your health, doing more physical activity, you're more likely to to engage in that. This, uh, it's an interesting concept. I, ha- I hadn't heard of loss aversion before, but I broke you midstream. So I'm sorry, carry on. You're about to give another example. Yeah, so these are more like the bad examples, but also there are good examples of, and actually behavior science was developed to build out these health behaviors and get people to do more good and, you know, behave in a way that's actually good for themselves. So that's where the science is coming from. Um, so for example, if we think about how can we, get, how can we get people to drink more water or, or exercise more? There are different tools that we can use. So if you just think of, for example, there were many uh, studies around vaccination during COVID. So they were testing different messages. And for example, they found that messages that tell you you have a specified period for you booked already, people were more likely to go because they felt like, oh, that's mine. So if I'm not going, I'm going to lose it. So things like that can be very powerful. And it's just one message. So as I mentioned in the previous, in my previous example, one word can trigger you in the wrong or the right way. So the principle is the same. And then we can more about, uh, we can talk more about health, um, physical activity. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. Uh, I think it might be nice to, if we have time later on to explore some of the tools that Richard Taylor explore, explores in his book, Nudge, which, which I've not read and, and sounds really interesting. But I suppose from the context of this podcast, what we're really interested in is physical activity and, and yeah. primary care. And so what I'd wondered was giving you a scenario as a primary care doctor, something we see regularly, and seeing if you could describe some tools that we might be able to use in the immediate and in in short periods of time. Does that sound all right? Perfect. So I think maybe something we we don't see uncommonly is a a 40-year-old 
slightly overweight male who comes in with back pain. We've got 10, 12 minute consultation. And after discussing various things to do, taking a history, a back exam, we've maybe got a few minutes left at the end to explore physical activity as a means to lose weight, improve his back pain, and also how we help him in implement that. And, and what skills or resources could we use to, to enable him to, to, to increase his chances of, of doing that physical activity in the short term and the long term? Yeah. So it's very important not to make them feel bad about themselves. So you have to start with messages that people like you, you know, could change and that you have the capacity to change. So you really have to increase the confidence of the patient because probably these, if they are overweight, they probably don't move enough. They don't have a good experience with physical activity and you don't know why exactly, but you can get the bottom of it because obviously you don't have the time. So there are a few different principles to, to uh, keep in mind. First of all, whatever activity you suggest, it has to be very easy and somehow it should be fun for them. So if you can, you know, talk to them, what, what do they enjoy to do? Do they enjoy taking their dog for a walk or go cycling with friends or I don't know, pay, uh, play paddle, whatever it is. Look for something fun at the beginning that is not that hard to do. Also, if it's possible, make it social for them. So maybe create a group of patients that go for a walk together or just encourage them to do something with their partners or their friends, something easy. And always think about baby steps. So obviously they don't know much about it. So maybe uh, look for influencers or YouTube videos where they talk, where similar people talk about their experience and what they did. And, you know, they, they want people look, uh, they want to look up to people who have gone through the same or that addresses their issues specifically and who understands them. But in general, I think walking is something very good to suggest because it's very easy. It can be, you know, impactful. They can just start with a 30 minutes walk after dinner. It's very important to walk after dinner or just ask them, okay, how much do you walk a day? Maybe they say 30 minutes, then ask them, okay, double that every day. Just that it's that easy. Start with something very measurable that they can actually feel like, okay, that's not that much. I can do it. And it's very important to make them commit by the end of the, your session, like get them to actually say, okay, I will try and I will do it. Uh, cool. That's really interesting. So I, I suppose to summarize five points, one is positive messaging and particularly the encouragement of confidence. We're doing a podcast on motivational interviewing and, and confidence is something that comes up there and, and the confidence yeah. question, they call it, which is a really valuable question on a scale of one to 10. How confident are you that you can make the behavior change and exploring yeah. rationale for making them more confident? What can they do? The second one's rewarding. You said make it easy and fun. And if things are fun, you get the dopamine hit and, and it becomes rewarding. So that's really interesting. Like peer support is repeatedly being shown to be super effective. I like the idea of influencers. I hadn't really thought of that. And, and I think social media gets a lot of bad press, doesn't it? But, but if we can use it positively and as clinicians, be able to identify positive people and, and uh, uh, recommend them to, to patients, that would be a really cool uh, step forward. And maybe that's something I need to look at doing. And then finally, is, is the commitment element 
Is there a, a means of commitment that's most effective, Naomi? Yeah, the commitment is very, very important because if you don't commit, then you can, you know, you can feel like, okay, I can do this later. Uh, I haven't decided yet. But once you made a public commitment, you will feel this lost aversion that, oh, I already committed that I have to do it. I don't want to tell my doctor, no, I didn't do it because I already committed. Interesting. I suppose what I was getting at, is there any evidence that shows saying it is more effective than writing it down or even posting it on social media? Yeah, saying it publicly is very important. And the more public it is, the better. Bro, okay, interesting. That's that's really cool. Thank you. So a few more questions. I suppose ultimately health promotion is about trying to help patients create good habits and stop bad ones. One of the the big things in behavioral science is, is habit formation. How how do we create good habits? Do you have any helpful pointers or, or any uh, any pitfalls that people commonly fall into? Yes. Creating new habits is, first of all, difficult. It takes three, three to six months to establish a new habit. So that has to be taken into consideration. And for example, when we look at behavior change, we always look at the overall environment of that you know, group of people or individual. So you have to look at both the digital and the physical environment when you're trying to change habits. And you have to understand the barriers and the drivers of behavior, of that specific behavior. And once you know, okay, these are the behaviors, these are the enablers, then you can design interventions. But this is a bit tricky because obviously we do a lot of research, then we have some time for strategy. So this is more like if you're trying to uh, uh, solve complex um, social issues. But let's say you want something solve something easier. Um, let's say you want to drink more water. Let's take this example and I will walk you through how you could change your own behavior. So you have to have a goal, right? I want to drink two liters of water at least every day. So the goal has to be measurable. It has to be a specific behavior because if it's not specific enough, you don't know what you actually want to reach. So that's something. But you also have to think about how you achieve that. So you have to think about the overall system. So when we are establishing new habits, we have to think about how we can make our environment so that it's easy for me to keep that habit. So if it's about drinking more water or just generally liquids, for example, you can say, okay, I will start the day with uh, a cup of uh, water with some lemon in it or with a cup of tea, whatever suits you. And then, you, for example, you will get a water bottle that is two liters. And so you can measure. It's very easy for you to measure how much you're actually drinking. And you take that water bottle with you wherever you go. So you put it in your car, you take it to work, wherever. And then it's always next to you. So it's very easy. Always, you always are reminded that you, okay, I have to drink now. But, or, or for example, you can uh, put a glass of water next to the coffee machine. So whenever you drink a coffee, you remind her, okay, I have to drink water as well. So actually what I'm describing here is that you have to find these different cues that remind you of uh, drinking water. So you make it easy. You make it easy for um, you make it easy to remember to drink water, and it's also very accessible. 
And then you have to reward yourself as well in the, in the process. So, okay, I had, okay, my water bottle is empty. I did good. Reward, uh, reward yourself with something until the habit is formed. And then you don't actually have to reward yourself because, okay, it's done. You, you already know what to do. So this is actually a habit loop. There's the behavior, there's a cue, and there's a reward. And that's how you build habits. Really interesting. And the water bottle acts, acts as a visible, a visible cue in that people see it and it prompts them to drink. And it works much better than having, for example, a notification on your phone. Because just having a notification, that, that, that doesn't make it easy. It just reminds you, but you probably won't get up because you're busy with something else. But if that water bottle is right next to you, it makes it easy. And that's why sometimes people forget that it's not enough to have all these different apps and all these different notifications. Because first of all, you will block it out after a while. Second of all, it actually doesn't, um, it's not re- uh, regarded as an actual cue. It's just a reminder. Interesting. And the habit has got to be as easy as possible, therefore, to make you do it. An example I've quite enjoyed from from a book by BJ Fogg was this idea of habit stacking uh, or habit pairing. And a, an example he gives is when you're doing your, every do, everyone does their teeth in the morning. And yeah. so that's a, a trigger that you can use to add another habit onto. So the moment that you finish brushing your teeth and you put your toothbrush down, you do the habit that you want to form. Exactly. Because that's a cue as well. One of the things that I've started recommending to, to patients, particularly elderly patients, is when you're brushing your teeth every day, twice a day, stand on one leg as a way of in, helping them improve their balance. It's something they do anyway. The toothbrush acts as a cue. I think it's a really cool thing. And, and actually, as you explore the different habits that people go through, our, our days are filled with habits. I have a coffee when I arrive at work. I get in and out of my car on the drive and the commute. Sometimes I cycle. <laughs> So I think there's loads of, of, of different habits that we do that we can use as cues to prompt new behavior. Exactly. So the flip side of that, forming new habits, is breaking bad habits. To my mind, that is much harder to do. Do you have any advice or tips on how we as individuals, but also as clinicians, help others to break bad habits? Yes. So breaking bad habits is... It's a bit different because you already have a habit. You already have a cue that triggers that behavior. So what you want is actually somehow eliminate or, or avoid the trigger you have. So, for example, if you want to drink less, going to parties and restaurants all the time will not help you because you will be surrounded by people who are drinking around you. And you also your brain knows that whenever I go to these places, I drink. So that's a very big, very um, powerful trigger, and that will make it very hard to resist. So you have to understand what is your trigger for that behavior, and you have to be very conscious to avoid those for a period of time. After a while, it it gets easy, but for the first three to six months, it will it will make your life harder. Um, so first of all, identify the triggers and try to consciously avoid those. Uh, so for example, know your weaknesses, right? And then once you actually committed that you want to change that behavior here, the commitment element is very important. Again, 
I know that I don't want to drink, you know, anymore. I, I committed. I said it publicly. I'm saying it to my friends. So whenever I do want to drink, I would feel ashamed of myself because I already told them that I'm, I quit. So that's something also very important. And then another really um, uh, uh, crucial aspect is having alternatives. So if you're not drinking, have a mocktail, have something that is equally as fun or good looking that you actually enjoy drinking because just drinking plain water, you know, might be boring, but so get something else that is non-alcoholic in this example. So find alternatives that make it easy for you to substitute that behavior. Um, and also, as we already mentioned, find supporters that help you stick to this habit that actually help you find or that they that, uh, who reward you or find your own reward. But this social element is very important. And having growth mindset. Sometimes people forget that, you know, you, you know, there might be fallbacks. You might go back, but then start again because it will be, you know, easier the next time because you already did some work. So obviously it's better to break habits once and for all, but it probably won't work out and you should know and, and make sure that you don't be, that you're not too hard on yourself and that you restart and start again and just try again. I think that's a really interesting point is helping patients and as individuals explore what they will do if they have a relapse. If you yeah. do break the habit or, or do the wrong thing, how do you pick yourself up? dust yourself off and get back going again. I also, I love the idea of alternatives. I don't know if it's the same in Hungary, but we grew up or in our household, my mum makes the most amazing dessert, uh, desserts, particularly crumbles. And so after every meal, we used to have a dessert. And so for years, when I finished my, my main meal, I craved something sweet. Yeah. And that's a habit that I've tried to get out of. And, and one way I've done that is by using herbal teas licorice teas to try and break the habit as an alternative sometimes it works sometimes it doesn't <laughs> but it's a uh... well you're so used to it your brain will crave it and it's just the same with drinks whenever you go to, i go to i try not to drink now and whenever i go to a restaurant i still crave it but i don't really want to drink right so that craving element is so hard to resist and that's why you should over, like, if it's too hard, avoid those environments. Obviously, you have to eat, so <laughs> that's a tricky one. But that's a good example and a good idea because you will you will get used to it and then actually won't feel good to eat the dessert anymore because you feel, feel too full or, you know, too sugary. And then, you know, the behavior change will already happen. One question I wanted to ask, Naomi, is a few of the books I've read, so James Clear's great book called Atomic Habits and, and BJ Fogg's book called Tiny Habits. Both talk about the role that identity has in habit formation. What we view ourselves as has a really important role in, in what we do. I'd love to explore that if we can and particularly look at how do we help people explore the person that they want to be, their future self, and therefore help them change their habits or their their behaviors yes that's a really really good question a good point because all right that our identities will serve as a starting point for our behaviors because if we believe that okay i'm very health conscious then if i drink i will feel weird because well i'm health conscious so how how can i drink this much alcohol and then there will be this cognitive dissonance of well something is wrong i shouldn't do that 
you know but if my identity is that okay, okay I'm, I'm i have a sweet tooth i have to eat desserts i have to eat that chocolate then you predispose yourself to this idea that you you have to do this this is your your core you can't change that's what you're telling yourself because that's our identities are very very strong and it's actually hard to change but once you flip them in your head that actually like kickstarts behavior habit change because it can be very powerful both ways so can you give me an example of how do you identify um in a social setting yeah 100% i suppose <laughs> i don't know if i choose this identity but i'm certainly given it as the person that is a bit bit of an exercise freak and loves to 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 go and exercise and and do things so uh i think you're right as a consequence it it means that i probably do more things because people expect me to yeah i think from a you know something i i've noticed or, or or tried to do with with patients is is get them to if they want to make a change get them to try and express what that might look like in the future so an easy one for older people is what kind of grandparent do you want to be or how do you see yourself as a grandparent because people inevitably see themselves playing with their grand grandchildren whatever capacity that that might be or walking with their grandparents uh, with their grandchildren sorry and so trying to get them to envisage a future where they're active and healthy and playing with their grandchildren is a really cool way of trying to prompt behavior change yes but you also have to ask them like Okay, but do you think you're capable? Do you think like what what is really trigger like bothering them about their physical activity? Because you you might realize that they think, yeah, but I can't walk as much anymore. I'm you know I'm too disabled or my back hurts too much. It won't you know it will be worse. So there will be many dis- misconceptions about themselves, their capabilities that you can also address and give them positive examples of people in similar conditions changing and becoming better so first of all you have to give them example you have you have to try to give them encouragement and so they get they shift their mindset from this very stubborn mindset of i can do it to the i can or i should be trying at least so you have to find these negative self identities or self perceptions and you can help them you know change those or by actually by doing they will change those identities or perceptions themselves as well but you can help them give them this first little step that they need yeah that's really interesting uh, realism is really important isn't it making sure that people and can because, yeah can actually envisage it and i think you're about to say be specific as well yeah be specific and also address misconceptions so you have to raise awareness because there's so many misconceptions especially as we age you know we are more afraid of new things we have all these theories that are not true so as a doctor you can address those and once you address them they might be able to change or at least change their mindset i suppose one of the things that i suppose listeners might be questioning is how do they do this in in short periods of time and i suppose the answer is it's really hard <laughs> in response what do you advise that if we have one or two minutes at the end of a consultation to try and prompt behavior change and, and utilize some of the skills that you're an expert in what can we do what are the 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 tools which are most effective in the sh- in the short term and also following on from that are there any 
other tools that we can use to help us? For example, technology, is it a friend or fool? Yeah. I mean, one of the most influential way of changing behavior is communicating social norms. So if you have a typical patient in, for example, between the age of 50 to 60, they're a bit overweight. You can tell them that similar men in your age group walk one hour a day. You only do 30 minutes a day. You should change that. So by communicating the norms in their specific group can be super effective because they will feel like they want to belong. They want to do at least as much. So communicating these norms that you think are, you know, realistic, but still are better than what they are doing can be super powerful. So make them feel like that you they can do better and that they should be doing better by communicating what others are doing or are capable of doing. So that's something that is probably the most powerful. Yeah. And if you have two minutes, maybe you can come up with some statistics and show it to them. That's really cool. I suppose one statistic which is helpful is in the UK, two thirds of adults meet the physical activity guidelines of 150 minutes of exercise a week. And so you could say to any adult, you know, people in your age group, the majority of them do do this. Yeah. Over two thirds do this. So well, that's really helpful. Thank you. Yes. And then technologies, obviously, yes, you can use technology. But what I think you should not forget is that in order for physical activity to occur, you also have to look at the mental health problems because mental health is usually a big barrier to physical activity. Obviously, they are interconnected, but that's what we shouldn't forget. Like physical activity and mental health should be linked and should be encouraged together. So obviously, there are so many applications, even for the elderly, like meditation or um, all these different tools that actually help you become more present or help you find the motivation you need to change. So I definitely recommend to just have this holistic uh, view and not just focus on the physical side, but on the mental health aspect as well. But I want to get your view on this as well. Yeah, I think that's super important. I think mental health and physical activity are, are so intertwined. And well, we know from from research that physical activity is as effective, if not more effective than antidepressants for the management of mild to moderate depression and anxiety. And so I think it's a a tool that we we underutilize and and need to utilize more. And, and, And that's really the intention of this podcast is to try and address that. I suppose that the pitfalls of of social media is that it can be associated with worse mental health but if we can use it well and and utilize it well then it it can also possibly act as a cue or or a uh a way of which we can kind of communicate social norms you mentioned websites apps are there any in particular that you might recommend i think especially youtube has so many good resources and youtube health So if you, for example, look at workout for beginners or workout for a specific group, you will find so many different resources that, you know, they can do at home and that they can find the person they they like the most. So it has endless resources. And that's something that I would really recommend. But also um, meditation apps could be very well utilized. But, you know, I don't know, the elderly might not like it as much, but especially for the younger generation, And I would also say that if you can involve family members. So 
if you want to change the behavior of a 65 year old man, get their children to help them to, you know, take them for a walk every day or help them support with healthier life uh, choices. And I think this is something we haven't covered yet. But when we think about individual behavior change, we have to look at the the family aspect of it as well and utilize whatever we can. And sometimes family members will be even more motivated to help and change the behaviors of their loved ones and they might listen to them more. So just take, not just look at the individual, but their close circle as well. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. And, and I tie it back to something you said earlier, which is the, you know, making their commitment uh, and, and, whether that's done in the presence of the GP or a written commitment or even better in presence of the health professional, but also family. And it can really encourage and prompt change and, and, and lead to both support, advocacy, but, but also accountability. Exactly. And it links to what you said, like whenever they think about their future, uh, future self and they think about their loved ones, so it can be interconnected. Every family member can be engaged this way because Obviously, if they, they are in a family and they love each other, then that's going to be a big uh, motivational force to, to help each other and save, uh, change behaviors for the better. I, I've moved around the questions that I sent you in advance. Now, I'm sorry I'm catching you off guard. One of the things I, I wanted to talk a little bit about, and we have touched on already, is environmental design on habits. Yeah. I think, first of all, from the perspective of the individual. An example I'll give is BJ Fogg talks about leaving your trainers by the front door or in a visible place so that you see your trainers a lot. And hopefully it prompts you, it's that visual cue to go for a run or a walk. Are there any tips or or comments you have on environmental design to shape our habits? Yes, definitely. And it can be our home environment. So whatever we put into a fridge. So when you know you want to plan ahead, you want to buy groceries at once and you want to buy healthy options. So whenever you open the fridge, there's always healthy options. And if you know you love popcorn, don't buy the popcorn in the first place. Don't buy it because once it's there, it will be hard to resist. So whenever you think about food and supplements, think ahead, buy those that are healthy, stock up on the healthy options. So you don't even have the opportunity to have the the unhealthy options, I would say. But um, when we think about exercise, as mentioned, like uh, having a running shoe uh, uh, wherever you see it or having the water bottle there, that's also something. Just put it, put something outside because then it will be a good reminder and will, it will make it easy for you. But your environment doesn't just involve your home. So, for example, if you want to start exercising, you can book a trainer because that helps you because you're already committed. You have a session. You paid for it. There's investment. You have to go. You already, you know, you don't want to waste somebody else's time. So that's something that is super effective. Or have a workout body. These things, you know, see people say them because they actually work. Because you have to do it with someone else. You already plan ahead. So that's something that when you do in your cold states, which is what we covered in the beginning, you want people to plan. You want people to commit to have these goals and then figure out how they were sold their lives to get to that goal. Super interesting. And you talk about commitment to a, a goal or a project, but also commitment happens at each stage of that process. So you have to commit to each run or each walk or each workout that you do. And, and having a buddy to do it with 
it is a, a support in that commitment or a, an affirmation in that commitment. And this is part of the environment, but also, for example, there's so many beautiful workout clothes now. It might, you know, it might make you feel good. You know, it shapes your form. You might love to wear it because it's comfortable. So if you're already in it, you might just go for a walk. So these little things can really help. And it's very good that now we have options. <laughs> yeah, that's really cool. I suppose that the, the other thing which I, I find fascinating, we as clinicians, whether we're doctors, nurses, healthcare assistants, whatever, we have the ability to shape the environment in which we work. Yeah. And so do you have any tips on what we can do to the environment in which we work to act as cues or prompts for patients coming in? Yeah, I think just the imagery that you use. So show images of people working out who look like your patients. They should be able to identify with the images that you see. You maybe show them images of like walking or different exercise routines or just help to get giving them books or having books around that are very informational. When, for example, they are waiting, have flyers or magazines or books around this specific topic so that people have the time. So they just read about it. They learn more about it. They get, you know, they have this awareness already. So have this environment that everything says I should be outdoor. I should be working out more. I should do, do more workouts. So I would say just images, information materials, books, and also just how you present yourself or what information you share about, um, how you work out, what, you know, why do you enjoy it? So just be their personal um, example or just somebody who is who does it as well. That's really cool. And, and I think you mentioned it just at the start of that was about making it relatable, people that look like them or, or, or locals they can relate to. And, and maybe that's a big issue with social media, isn't it? That so much of what we see feels so unrelatable. Uh, particularly with regard to physical activity often people have got rip-roaring apps or 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 and what's also very important is testimonials so for example patients who already lost weight you know you should have messages from them or they should they could be sharing their stories have a little book about uh, success stories things like that shows that you know people like them already achieved what they've done what they want to achieve can be really, really powerful as well. And if you build a community, for example, you could have, you could establish a walking club or something like that. And then your patients can sign up um, and they can interact with each other. They can share their worries or their problems. So if you see two patients that are, you know, very similar, have similar struggles, you might connect them and they might start to do something together. Look, I think I'm going to uh, pull this to a close. It's been so fascinating. I'm sure we could talk for hours and hopefully people have really enjoyed it. We talked about three books, uh, or I talked about two. One was Tiny Habits by BJ Fogg. The other was Atomic Habits by James Clear. And you mentioned Nudge by Richard Taylor. Any other resources you'd recommend to people if they want to know more? Yes, there's re a really good uh, book called VR, Our Brains. 
Uh, I really, really enjoy it. And it gives you a different perspective on how we function and how we not just make decisions, but what is your brain, you know, uh, basic functioning and also how does it affect your life? So it's a very, very good one. Also, um, the body keeps the score. It basically links your traumas and your physical symptoms to your mental health. And it's one of my favorite books. It's not just about physical activity, but I would recommend it anyways. Also, the book Why We Sleep, it helps patients really learn about not just the uh, effects of physical health, but sleep and overall healthy living. So I would really, really recommend that because once they get into this mindset that I will employ one healthy habit, which is, for example, getting more sleep, then they might change in other aspects as well, which is super important. Um, and then... Uh, I, I would just generally recommend Andrew Huber's, Huberman's podcast because he talks so much about um, different healthy <laughs> aspects of life, health, health facts. So I think it's very, very popular um, and it's a very good toolkit to find out more about what you can do and what kind of habit change, uh, changes you need to make. Oh, that's been awesome. Thank you so much for those recommendations as well and, and coming on and, and spending time sharing some of your knowledge with us. I'm of sure if, if people want to find out more about you or get in contact with you, you'd be more than happy for them to do so. Your website's Beehive, which is B-E-H-I-V-E dot consulting. Uh, yes. And I'm sure they'll be able to find your, your details on there. Luke, thanks, Naomi. And, and thank you, everyone, for listening to The Movement Prescription. Thank you so much. No problem. <laughs>